you're not going to just make it better simply because the students in front of you are of those communities. There is real intentional, deliberate work that needs to be done. And it starts first with what these things mean to you and the actions that where the actions show up in the work that you do, how it shows up in your syllabus, how it shows up in your relationship building with the students, how it shows up in your inclusion and involvement of those students in the meaning making of the classroom. I'm Allison Pease, Associate Provost for Institutional Effectiveness. Hi, I'm Dara Byrne, Associate Provost for Undergraduate Retention and Dean of Undergraduate Studies. And we're back again with our podcast series on creating a framework for a culturally affirming, inclusive, and anti-racist curriculum and pedagogy at John Jay College. In this conversation, we interview Professor Sylvia Mazzula, Professor Alex Moffat-Bateau, and Professor John Gutierrez. And we asked them, what does it mean to have an inclusive curriculum and inclusive pedagogy? And honestly, it turned into a really interesting conversation that I don't think either you or I expected, Dara. At the end of our last podcast, you and I had a really great discussion about these terms and what they mean. And we went back and forth on whether our description of culturally affirming, inclusive and anti-racist curriculum and pedagogy was accurate. Are some of these terms interchangeable? What do they mean in terms of what you do in your classroom and the frameworks that inform the, the classroom work? And I took to, to uh, Facebook, as I usually do when I have questions, and asked a, a broad question of the Facebook community. Um, you know, my, my friend list is about 1,500 people and got a number of responses, primarily from educators, that weighed in beautifully on the idea of what culturally affirming and inclusive means to them, and that these are very specific terms that do not imply um, that one is present and the other is automatically there. And I just want to share one particular point from an educator in Canada, Adrian Cadet, that was simple and clean and did a lot for the clarity that I think helps to connect with the podcast today. She says, my lived experience included versus including the history that confirms my lived experience. And I like that statement because it put into play for me exactly what's at stake when we create our syllabi to both affirm with relevant materials, the students that are in front of us. Um, I need you to unpack that phrase a little bit. My lived experience versus what? My lived experience included 
versus including the history that confirms my lived experience. Got it. So I took this to be the difference between the person and what informs their life and the resources, the histories, what you're teaching that relates to their lived experience. And that is why culturally affirming and inclusive are both needed in the sentence that we are describing here. Right. So you see culturally affirming as a student-centered approach and inclusive as a scholarly, almost disciplinary approach that includes the experiences of someone like any one of our students. Absolutely. Interesting. And I think, and I think that in this podcast, as Professor Missoula introduces the term culturally relevant, we see the important link between the two. is an inclusive curriculum and what's inclusive pedagogy? Thank you, Allison. So if I, if, uh, first of all, it's really nice to be in this conversation. Um, <clears throat> so the, the question of what is an inclusive curriculum or pedagogy, right? Um, yep. So for me, I always, part of being inclusive or culturally affirming and relevant is to always uh, kind of think through where I come from. So I'm a counseling psychologist by training, and that impacts how I understand inclusion and uh, culturally uh, affirming ways. So for me, an inclusive, um, uh, including uh, addressing inclusive and culturally affirming curriculum is the same way that I kind of approach my worldview of everything. Um, it's not something that um, one faculty or instructor or lecturer can kind of take a class and uh, check off or learn about someone else and then include that in that curriculum, uh, which is typically how we understand issues of diversity in the country for, it seems like, forever. And a lot of times I think that's where most of the country is in terms of education. So what that means is that culturally affirming, to, to do anything that's culturally affirming, affirming I look at a, a three-prong approach, and I'll just mention the three things briefly so that others can answer, and then I'm happy to kind of, you know, talk through it uh, with the other two um, faculty. But it's three things, and these are just basic multicultural tenets, just how I was trained, uh, and it's often cited in multicultural psychology, so that's my frame of reference. The first is being self-aware and engaging in critical self-reflection. Um, I cannot help students unless I know where I'm coming from. And, and, and that, that considers that pedagogy and curriculum is grounded within a cultural racial context. And if we're in the United States, if anyone has gone to school, elementary, high school, college, our students in the United States, they're being instructed uh, from a Western perspective. And not, not only in the classroom, but all our systems are 
grounded in a Western perspective. And that's very, it's a very unique approach that we don't often questions be, question because this is how we're trained. It's kind of like the fish in the water. So the first part would be being self-aware and engaging in critical self-reflection as faculty, understanding our values, how we see things from uh, time, how we value time. If we're thinking about Latinx communities, some uh, racial ethnic groups, time is about presence, present moment, and being in interpersonal uh, relationships, enjoying one another, and learning can come from that, as opposed to if we're in an individualistic world, which is how we do most of our curriculum at John Jay and everywhere in the country. It's more individualistic, right? So it's task-oriented, it's pragmatic. There's a cause and effect. You study, you, you pass. It's more task-oriented and future-oriented. So those things are important to know. Um, the second would be understanding yourself is then how we can address culturally affirming uh, curriculum and um, pedagogy. So once we self, we're self-aware, then we can work to change uh, our curriculum and make it more inclusive. And then the last one is making those changes are relevant to the students. A lot of times we leave the word relevant out of the conversation. Um, and we can think that something is affirming or inclusive. However, our students may not find that relevant because it's outside of their worldview. Um, so those are the three things I think about when I think of culturally inclusive curriculum and pedagogy. So thanks for that, Sylvia, because that's actually uh, really helpful. First, what I want to say is apologies to all of my uh, education scholar colleagues out there, because I am sure that inclusive curriculum and culturally affirming curriculum mean very, very specific things in that context. And given that I'm not an ed scholar, I have no idea <laughs> what that is. And so I'm sure they're going to be screaming the way I typically scream when people use politics to mean any and everything, right? So with that said, um, I really appreciate uh, Sylvia's uh, initial framing because what it has me thinking about is the reality that being a political scientist and the training I received therein really does shape my understanding of what constitutes culturally affirming and inclusive uh, curriculum and pedagogy, right? As does my experience of being a Black American woman who grew up in Detroit and, you know, is now living in Harlem, right? Like, all of those experiences uh, really shape how I understand the world, but also how I think about uh, what's happening in my curriculum, particularly given that we are teaching at a majority Black and Brown institution. And so, uh, a number of our students recognize themselves in me in a particular way, right? Um, and so when I think about anti-racism, particularly anti-racism that centrally concerns itself with anti-Black racism, um, and all of that is inherently political, right? The inclusivity piece, the anti-racism piece, the culturally affirming piece, like, all of those are political 
and not in political in the sense of aligning uh, with any various party, right? But political in the sense that they are an attempt to push back against the ways in which uh, white supremacy has oriented the assumptions that historically we've made about what should happen um, in the classroom, in education more broadly, and so on and so forth. So when I think about the actual kind of steps that I take to make sure that my classroom is one that recognizes the humanity in all of my students and recognizes and understands them as adults who have actual real experiences that are relevant, who have a unique sort of brilliance that has to be recognized and nurtured, right? I start with thinking about okay, how can I make sure that I created a classroom that best supports their growth, right? And so I have to think about like, okay, I've made my classroom, my remote classroom asynchronous because a number of my students are working full-time jobs and are taking six classes and are doing, you know, are responsible for elder care and child care and are juggling the remote uh, learning of multiple people in their household, right? And so first and foremost, I have to make sure that the students can access my education, right? Because if I try to make them sign on to a Zoom call twice a week in the middle of the week, every, you know, Tuesday and Thursday for an hour and a half or to sit down and watch that video that's an hour and a half long twice a week, every week, that's probably not going to happen given the way in which the pandemic has radically shaped all of our lives, right? We're all struggling with how to do our work, how to get our kids through school with remote learning, and our students are no different, right? And so I think we have to really take that kind of stuff um in mind, right? And then I think about the unique kind of cultural backgrounds. I have students who have immigrated from Europe, from South America, from all over the world, right? But I also have black and brown students who have grown up in the U.S. I have white students who have grown up in the U.S. And so how do I make sure that they have the skill set um, to develop the ideas that they are most interested in, right? And so one of the things that I do the first two weeks is I spend a lot of time making sure that they understand that they're active participants in shaping their own education, right? And so I get up there and I say like, hey, you know, you are not robots that are just meant to absorb whatever I tell you and then repeat it back to me, right? Like, I am an individual person who has constructed these lectures based on a set of arguments that I believe to be true. I've compiled the data. I have put it together in a particular way. But you need to understand that this entire course is an argument that I'm making. Right. And so you absolutely can and should feel empowered enough to push back. Right. And that's a really big deal because so many of our students have been through this public school system that teaches them to defer to authority above all else, right? And so this idea that they can push back against a professor in the classroom with empirical data, of course, 
<laughs> and this idea that they can criticize the literatures that are being put in front of them, it's a very, um, it kind of shakes their worldview in a very particular way because particularly growing up as a black student uh, personally, right? Like the number one thing in my household, the number one things in my classroom was the main way you keep yourself safe is by being obedient and being uh, you know, deferring to everybody in power and just doing what you're told, right? And so getting to college and then suddenly having folks say, well, wait, no, you've got to, you can't just do what you're told. You have to push back. You have to create, think, create, think critically. Um, you know, these are all things that can really change how students think about themselves and think about their relationship to the world, right? And, and that's particularly, I think, disorienting at the same time that we are in a college environment that is so uh, dominated by policing um, and uh, other types of law enforcement, while at the same time, you know, the world is really advocating for defunding the police, right? A lot of our students show up to the classroom like, well, what am I supposed to think? What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to defer to police to keep myself safe? Or am I supposed to be out there advocating, right? And so I think one of the things that we can do in an inclusive classroom is give students the tools to be able to think through these political ideas for themselves and come to their own conclusion and to give themselves the confidence to know that they have the tools to think these things through and they don't have to kind of be in a constant state of fear um, about their own intelligence or their own capacity. Um, let me, uh, first of all, I, I'd much rather uh, continue to listen uh, to Sylvia and Alex than chime in here, uh, to be very honest with you. Um, I, uh, I, I think... I am uh, I'm a, I'm kind of a, a latecomer to this I issue, um, and I, I say that because um, my graduate school training, um, you know, which was at CUNY, um, never addressed these issues of um, of what to do in the classroom. And I, I, that was true for um, how to teach in general, uh, but it was also true uh, in looking at matters of creating um, an inclusive curriculum and an inclusive classroom. Um, those were things that were not, they were not taught. And so, um, you know, in hearing Sylvia talk about that first step being self-awareness, for me, over the course of the last several years, um, that's been a lot of the focus of, of my, um, my sort of transformation, transforming of the classroom. Um, it's sort of trying to figure out why I believed what I believed. Uh, and part of that has been, um, I think it's been a helpful uh, thing for me uh, to reflect back on my own college experience um, as a, you know, first generation uh, college student. Um, my parents didn't go to college um, and I was lucky enough um, to uh, go to a, you know, fairly well-respected small liberal arts college. 
and um, and going there um, really changed everything about my life. Um, I remember when um, at my graduation ceremony, the president of our college, after we had moved our tassels from one side to the other, she said, welcome to the company of educated men and women. And I believed that. And when I went to graduate school, what I realized was that the thing that I thought had saved me was, was the humanities, was getting to know the literature um, of, uh, of history, uh, feeling like I could organize my world um, by holding on to that, to that canon. And so when I started teaching, uh, and I've taught all, almost exclusively at CUNY for the last almost 20 years, um, that's the way I had organized my classwork, which was that if the humanities saved me, uh, it will save you. I don't know that I had a good sense of how to evaluate um, the effectiveness of that, um, that approach. Um, you know, I had good evaluations, you know, students responded positively, but it took having conversations with my colleagues in my department at John Jay for me to begin to think differently about what I was actually trying to do or should be doing uh, in the classroom. For me, one of the things that has really informed my teaching was experiences I had in undergrad where I'm, you know, a political science major that specializes in political theory. And I'm reading all of these white theorists, you know, freshman year through senior year. But then I go to um, the African-American studies department and I encounter black feminism for the first time and it blows my mind and I become obsessed and I read everything I can about black women's politics. And I do my honors thesis about it. And I take an African-American politics class in political science with uh, Vince Hutchings who became a mentor. And it lights this fire in me because I'm like, okay, how is it possible that I essentially spent four years here at Michigan and I am only getting information about Black political engagement in these limited silos, and it's not integrated at all into the whole of what we do or how we uh, learn about political science. I think we are still, you know, as you're talking, um, Alex, I'm, I'm thinking about my experiences in colleges, college as well in the late 1900s and, <laughs> and and what it sounds like when our students are talking today and mm. it still sounds the same it's that exactly they're, the, they're exactly siloed the right so here's my question for you guys because 
Um, I asked this the other day of some educators and many teachers responded um, about what exactly is the difference between culturally affirming and inclusive. And, and I'm asking that because, as you mentioned, Alex, you, you, you didn't have this in your own schooling. And I think mm-hmm. our listeners, particularly our students, need to keep that in mind, that for mm-hmm. many of us, faculty of color or faculty representing a marginalized group that wasn't part of this founding idea of what higher education would do, mm-hmm. um, we didn't get that either. And mm-hmm. so we we either built things on our own or found some pocket little thing or, or had mm-hmm. departments or colleagues where we were cultivating these things ourselves. So what then is culturally affirming versus inclusive? Does it mean different pedagogies, theories, frameworks, or are these interchangeable? Does one um, relate to the other? Can they be replaceable? And I I see the terms thrown around, Mm -hmm. but again, we don't have common ground yet on this. Is it culturally affirming and inclusive, culturally affirming or inclusive? I think this is one of those things, at least my experience as a younger, uh, (laughs) not young, but I guess younger adjacent, uh, Black professor um, in an institution that teaches majority Black and Brown students, but whose faculty is majority white, like, I have, you know, gotten ideas and frameworks from mentors outside about what to do and how to affirm students. But it's never, no one's ever handed me a book or a text and said, you should read this stuff on culturally affirming or inclusivity or anything. It's more like, okay, we understand we are some of the few Black people in political science. How do we reconstruct this thing so that everyone can feel seen and everyone can feel like they have the capacity to break this thing apart and put it back together, right? And so for me... It hasn't, you know, and this is why I really appreciate Sylvia's framing and kind of how she thinks about, because that's going to definitely make me take a step back and think about like, okay, are there some more uh, clearly defined pieces that I need to be put in here? But I do try to think about my position. I do think about how to make the safest, to the extent that safety exists, right? And I always tell my students that I don't necessarily think safety exists in under white supremacy and that we kind of all have to manage that. But I do think about how do I give my, my students the skills to feel like they don't have to accept whatever political science just hands them or tells them about themselves because so often it's young black people don't vote, young Latinx folks don't vote, poor people right. don't vote. Like, do you have to accept that, right? But in terms of these terminologies, I've never... Um, I've never really wrestled with them or dealt with them before until uh, this kind of more institutional movement within the college is that they're thinking about these ideas. Uh, Let me, um, because I I think this question of culturally affirming, and I'm with Alex, I, I really haven't thought much about these words in terms of how, how I use them to describe what's happening in my classroom. But just like on a, on a gut level, the, the, the phrase culturally affirming 
um, troubles me um, because I mm-hmm. think that mm-hmm. it, there's a there's an element here. There's a rah rah element here. Like we we were just <laughs> finishing, um, you know, Hispanic Heritage Month, right? And I, I'm not going to knock mm-hmm. Hispanic Heritage Month, right? Because you know it, it's. I think it has some value, but but there is a um, there's a strain in that month mm-hmm. um, that is culturally affirming, right? The, what bothers me, I guess, about this is that I I I, I was trained by um, a historian of slavery in Latin America, right? And, you know, he wrote about slavery in Puerto Rico, Cuba, and Brazil. Though, there's nothing affirming about those stories. Mm-hmm. Like, there, I, I, don't, I, I don't look at that history and see an opportunity, you know, to say, well, look at what we did, right? And I think that, you know, obviously in my classes, I try to make these issues more complex. But what worries me about that, the, the term culturally affirming is that I think that outsiders, you know, in my department, we've been discussing these issues for as long as I've been there, right? And we'll continue to discuss them no matter what happens, because it's central to the way that we conceive of our department and the work that we do. But outside of our department, I worry that when a scholar who may have an interest in changing the curriculum Mm-hmm. Um, or the mm-hmm. syllabus in their class hears that we're after a culturally affirming, you know, um, curricular change that that scholar may turn around and go, that's not what I do in my classes. Like, mm-hmm. you, you, you see what I mean? Like, there's a, there's a, I don't know if it's like a, a, a problem, a, a problem of rhetoric Right. That the, the phrase, it, it tends to imply something that I think most scholars, you know, our, our job as scholars usually is to pick things apart. Right. 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 And so now we're being told like, hey, by the way, you know, we want you to think about, you know, culturally affirming scholarship or a, a, a curriculum or pedagogy. And I, I think we have to do a better job of trying to define that um, in a way that respects the way in which scholars tend to approach their work. Yeah, because it does Um, signal a certain level of comfort that I think most of us, particularly scholars of color, believe firmly that like you shouldn't have when you're studying race, ethnicity, or any kind of marginalization or oppression, right? You shouldn't be comfortable. You shouldn't necessarily feel affirmed in that. That absolutely, yep. I, I would like to jump in here. Um, and if anybody knows me, I tend to have a lot of reactions and it's probably the co- uh, counseling psychologist in me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot going on in my head. And the first thing I, I kind of wanted to point out is that... Um, you know, the, the term cultural relevance, culturally relevant scholarship, culturally, uh, these are new terms to capture. Um, and I've seen this just in the areas that I work. So psychology, public health, um, medicine is, from my experience, is not quite using these terms. The way that I see it is that the difference between inclusion and culturally or racially affirming curriculum is that 
Um, inclusion is I create my syllabus um, and then I'll add a, a chapter on uh, blacks and then I'll add a chapter on Asians and w- with whatever topic, whether we're talking about psychology, history or, uh, you know, po- political science. Right. So that is inclusion to me. That is more like diversity, just putting making sure that we check the box. Right? So culturally affirming or culturally relevant is this idea that whatever we do has to be relevant to the students. So uh, mm-hmm. you pointed out this idea of you learned about slavery and that you see nothing or you don't think there's anything affirming about that. I am a uh, great granddaughter of an African slave that was taken to Uruguay. My grandmother's are kind of like a second generation free slave in Uruguay. I am light skinned. Tell me in my classes about slavery and you are affirming my reality. There's nothing great about what happened, but when we leave those things out, we are not affirming, we are excluding. And Dara, I think you said it was, we have to kind of create these things, create these niches, find our way. So one of mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. coming to John Jay as a Latina, self-identified Latina woman, um, I expected to find, and this was my nativity, I mean, naiveness, sorry, as also like John, a first generation student, neither of my parents had graduated high school when I graduated uh, from high school or college. So um, no one has this kind of knowledge, I don't think. It's not Ed Scott. Mm -hmm. Part of when I found myself as... At that point, the only self-identified Latina in a pretty large department in psychology, um, I had to find my way. And it was com- my way became something that's completely different than what I was trained to do, which was mm-hmm. research on biculturalism within a race context. Because no one ever talks about race when we're talking about immigration issues and acculturation issues. But that's another story. But in finding my way, I created networks of community throughout the country to get more Latino, Latina women, cisgender, mm-hmm. binary, mm-hmm. Um, into research careers. And this is what I find. It's not that political science doesn't know that or doesn't talk about it or talks about it and does nothing. It's not, it's just, this is the state of the field. Right, right. This is just, this is just where we are. We are not... <laughs> Culturally affirming. We are very much about diversity, right? There's your mm-hmm. culture, Hispanic Heritage Month. You know, mm-hmm. show up, you know, show up to the network <laughs> event because you're the Latino. <laughs> right. Let us right. count right. you so we know how many That's of you exactly. we have on campus. Exactly. <laughs> Let me put your picture on our website so we can show we are racially, culturally diverse. That is inclusion. That is not culturally affirming. Mm-hmm. And then culturally affirming is really coming from a place, regardless of where, what theory or what uh, field we're in, is really tr- acknowledging that it's a Western cultural context. You are an immigrant, or even if you're a third generation. I mean, research shows that third generation immigrants are still endorsing values from their native third generation back worldview mm-hmm. but you can't do an inclusive and affirming curriculum 
without knowing what that is for the students. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then the other yeah. piece I wanted to talk about is this issue of taking classes or taking um, professional development programs on how to like how to be a better teacher, how to do a better syllabus, all those because this is also my area of research in terms of the state of the field and how we understand issues of race and culture, at least with Latinx, um, I am going to say those are based on Western white context. Mm -hmm. We're learning on how to construct the syllabus is based on a Western white, cisgender, heterosexual male context. So even those trainings need to be teased apart. Like, really, what are we doing? Even these diversity trainings, are we really talking about it? One of the things that I do in terms of being culturally inclusive is, is, is also using my voice. So for Latino students, um, I represent first-generation first poor, first-generation immigrant. Um, I have a lot of those identities that students can relate to. Yeah. At, at least the Latinx students. And what... The, I, I focus on my identities to have socially constructed power. Right? Mm. So I'm <clears throat> about racism. And I self-identify as a light-skinned Latina in every single class. And I do it intentionally. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about Black Latinos, Afro-Latinos. They're not included because we take the okay. same approach. In I, I'm sorry, John. But I'm going to ask you, how many Latino faculty in the department are Black in your department? Not in mine. Uh, In my department, well, um, this is a fascinating question, right? Because uh, let's define Blackness within within a Latin American context, right? Uh, (laughs) Well, I'm going to say is visible Blackness. (laughs) Like again, my complexion. Again, well, well, no, no, no. But but this is again, again. This is where we're we're going to, you know, what are we talking about here, right? Are we talking about cafe con leche? Are we talking about piel canela? Are we talking about halal? Are we talking about you know what I mean? Like in Latin America, we have right, and then we get into these discussions where blackness is then diffused. Mm-hmm. There, the black voices go unnoticed because still the ones that are having this conversation are people that look like me, which is light-skinned Latinx. I don't. But, but the thing is, in the United States, right? I mean, um, I mean, we I have these conversations with my students. You know, in in Latin America, you may consider yourself to be, you know, trigañito, right? Um, but when you come to the United States, you're black. That's and and I, I think that so, you know, when I think about my department, I am probably the lightest skin uh, faculty member in my department. But me and 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 one other faculty member w- would be would be considered white. Um, but the others are a mix of indigenous and black. And, um, you know, I, I think. Well, that's fabulous. Uh, I wish every department across the college and across the country would reflect that. Well, but let me, I, let me, I actually, I, I think that's a very important point that we have not discussed here, which is that a lot of the work of, of producing this curriculum and having, having students connect to it 
is also a product of having students see sitting, you know, standing at the front of their classroom, black and, you know, and brown uh, faculty members. And that's That's a real... That's exactly it. You know what I mean? Like that, like I can, I can navigate with my students, um, you know, the sort of um, cultural, um, you know, I can make cultural connections because I know this culture because it's Mm -hmm. my culture. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying that that makes me a better scholar than my colleagues who also work on the history of Cuba, but I'm just saying within the context of the classroom and having students go, wait a minute, this guy just said something that my father says or something that I heard my grandmother say, and he sounds this way, or, you know, it's a cultural reference that I get. I I don't want to discount the importance of that. And I actually want to emphasize it uh, because I think it's one of the things that if colleges are serious about making these changes, mm-hmm. that they have to look at. I will be, you know, back in the old days when we had class in person, <laughs> like I'd be standing in front of the classroom and students would be like, oh, okay, are, is the professor late? Like, Mother who are you? Like, are you are you the secretary from upstairs? Like, what's going on with the professor? Right? Because they can't even imagine a world where I am the professor, right? right. So, right. <laughs> you know, part of this is is the reality is that the reason why colleges all over the country have to have these conversations about essentially tearing open the ways in which white supremacy has so wildly over overdetermined the way in which we structure everything from curriculum choice to pedagogy to uh, tenure and promotion is because there aren't very many black and brown people present in these institutions at all in the first place, right? When you talk about the hierarchy of oppression, Blackness is always at the bottom, no matter where you are globally, right? And so if we start with anti-Black racism, we understand that if that's solved, a good chunk of the racism above it is also solved, right? And so I think it's important that we articulate that we're we're specifically talking about anti-Black racism, right? But in terms of your question, um, Allison, in terms of this, this question about uh, you know, what we're doing in our classrooms. I really agree with Sylvia and John, and this is actually something that I've done since day one that I, I didn't even think about. But the first day of class, I get up and I tell my students, like, hey, my name is Professor Moffat Beto. I am Black. I'm queer. I'm disabled, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, I'm under 40. And the reason why I named those things, and then I tell them about having lupus and how disruptive it's been to my life. And, you know, 
the reason why I do that is because I have had so many students of color in particular, like I had a student one semester who had heart disease, who was literally in the midst of uh, heart failure, this young black man. And he didn't tell me until the very last day of the semester because he was afraid that I wasn't going to take him seriously. Right. And so there's a way in which all of these systems of oppression of these isms create an environment where our students feel like they have to perform under white supremacy in a very white, able-bodied, uh, heteronormative way in order to gain respect and rewards within the classroom. And so what I try to do is I try to push back against that on day one and say, hey, like, these are my identities you don't have to hide yourselves in this classroom. And I'm going to start by giving you an example of what that can look like, mm -hmm. right? Like you don't have to worry that somehow by being a black student or disabled student or queer or a trans student is going to make me take you less seriously or implicitly punish you in some particular way, right? And so when Sylvia is talking about like, even like black and brown people get rewarded in terms of hiring, it's usually those of us that can perform within white supremacy in a very particular way. And the same thing happens in our classrooms. The students who are able to mimic behavioral norms, who are able to mimic um, their, who are able to code switch in a very particular way, those are the students that we reward and tell, say are smart, that we recommend for McNair's, that get the internships, you know? And so when we're talking about culturally relevant, to use Sylvia's term, uh, kind of education, we're talking about reframing everything, not curriculum and the pedagogy that we're teaching. We're talking about how we understand our students as people and how we understand and reward their so-called success. I, I, let me, um, Alex, I, I wish you could bottle that last like 10 minutes <laughs> and that I could, you know, put, put it on my desk and listen to it uh, over and over again, because I think you, you hit on so many really important issues there. I, um, I, I think that the, the point about who we reward in the classroom, right, um, about the students who and you use the word mimic, right, the th the the. Um, the behaviors and the, um, uh, I guess the the work product, right? That we expect mm -hmm. from students. Um, I I do that all the time, and I part of it is because I feel this profound urgency to help my students be ready for the world that I know is out there. Yeah. Like I, I yeah. remember what it was like to hire people, you know, in a for-profit, you know, firm and, you know, talking to other people about how the, the Latino bench was, wasn't as strong as I needed, as I wanted it to be. Right. And, and so for me, you know, I, I think you're right. I think it, you know, there's there's a need to change the the expectations, but there's a part of me that you know 
I, I want my, I want my students to graduate. I want them to be employable. I want them to excel. Um, and there, you know, the knowing how to navigate that world, right. Um, and the soft skills that you need to navigate that world, which we don't teach. I know that the system is, is stacked against them. And I feel like I can't have them just go, well, the system is wrong and I'm not going to have them, you know, you know, they should, the system, the system is wrong is that, and that's enough, you know, like I just, I don't, and I don't know, I, I don't know that I have an answer for this, yeah. but yeah. I, there yeah. is. We have to prepare our students for the world of white supremacy outside of this door. Right. Yeah. And so the best thing that I think we can do is to say white supremacy exists. Here are some skills you are going to need to operate within it. But remember that this is not to say that who you are and what you are and where you come from is anything to be ashamed of. Just understand that this is these are some tools of survival that you're going to need. Right. And so that's what I that's what I mean by like constantly contextualizing everything as something that they have a choice in that they can push back in and they don't have to just accept or they can choose to use those skills in whatever way that they choose, right? But they need to understand that these things aren't fixed realities that have greater or less value than anything they walked in the door with. So if you could think of one small thing that all faculty, regardless of background, could take on that moves them towards, you can say, a more culturally relevant, a culturally affirming or inclusive curriculum and pedagogy, what would that be? I would say question everything. And step one, take apart your syllabus and figure out a way to get to 30, 40% scholars of color. No matter what you teach, I promise you there are folks of color who have been writing into the void for years who, you know, haven't gotten the uh, recognition for the kind of field-changing work that they've done. So start at your syllabus, figure out how do you get more folks of color represented there. It's not that, you know, it's not like if you do mathematics, you have to, uh, somehow include conversations of race, but I guarantee you there are black and brown uh, mathematics mathematicians, sorry, uh, who who probably have some interesting perspectives and things, or even ex- interesting um, cases and examples that they might be using that you've never considered. So, you know, start start with the syllabus. I would say. Um you know, uh, ask questions of your, um, your fellow faculty members. Um, I, I think that, you know, there's been a lot of work recently about how much pressure is on faculty of color, um, to address these issues mm-hmm. for other people in the institution. Right. Um, and I understand that. And it's, I think that's, I've seen that with, with my own colleagues, 
Um, and I, I, I think it's grueling. And, you know, these are people who are trying to do their own research that has value. <laughs> um, but uh, we have to start somewhere and there has to be an openness, um, you, you know, to reach out to somebody who, um, you know, who has an area of expertise. You know, if you're teaching a world history course, you know, talk to somebody who teaches, you know, revolution in Latin America, right? It, ask them where the, you know, where the readings are, where the stat, you know, what's the state of the literature. Um, you know, I, I think that that's something you would have likely done in a graduate school class, right? You would have had a much more diverse group of people all thrown together, all working on, you know, I took classes on modern European history, et cetera. Um, U.S. history. I, I I would love to see faculty be much more willing to reach out to the people, you know, who have the expertise on campus and just ask, you know, what what do you think is a good idea here? What are you reading? What's new um, that may make sense for my classes? Um, I think to to both Alex and and John's suggestion, um, I I feel the need to acknowledge that uh, anytime you ask faculty to do something that's going to make them change, there's always pushback. Right? Uh, I know I personally don't want to attend another class, uh, another training, another anything. Um, and then when it comes to issues of diversity and inclusion, the, the, the pushback can be very big and soul-wrenching. Um, and, I, and I think that's something we need to acknowledge because oftentimes the suggestions to do this kind of work come from uh, faculty of color who are already kind of thinned out, overworked, overextended, undervalued. Uh, so I kind of wanted to put that back on you, Allison. Uh, to use your whiteness to 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 give voice to people that when we voice our opinions it gets uh, it gets put aside for uh, to be nice but <clears throat> I guess the suggestion that I would have in a way that doesn't add more work and doesn't facilitate this idea of you can't tell me what to do because I'm a scholar and I do my work the way I do it, or I can't attend another training. It's just doing something as simple as asking everyone to just identify one time that they were oppressive to someone else and mm -hmm. to think about what that means and how it impacts their life. Because it, if we, again, if, if we don't do that work, I know it's very psychology oriented, but if we don't do that work, then we're walking around being oppressive with our best intentions of really creating fabulous curriculum, fabulous lectures, selecting as many, um, you know, readings that are racially, ethnically diverse. But if our worldview comes from, you know, supremacy or it, it, it's meaningless. I don't know how else to say it besides that. Our students don't feel connected. It's not really about how many, you know, how the syllabus has how many, you know, Latino names or um, 
readings on Africana studies or African Americans, or it's really how the materials also presented. I mean, oppressed populations can read people. You know, at least for me and my students and my team, we know when you're next to someone that values you, and when you're not. By the way, things are communicated. By the way, things are why. By the way, um, students are dismissed. Right? You can have. 10 articles or the 75% of your article of your syllabus being diverse scholars. But then if, when you're talking about the reading, you say, Hey, uh, Natasha, what does black communities think about this black issue? (laughs) This happens quite often. Right. Mm -hmm. So we other our students all the time. Um, So for me, I'm sorry, I'm going, you know, keep rambling, but I think the important part is some kind of, self-reflection, critical self-reflection on ourselves as racial, cultural beings and where we stand. Unless we do that work, honestly, I don't see any major change. And I hope you guys can see why we were so enthusiastic about having a conversation with each of you because the the work is unfixed very messy and very problematic and having voices that speak to it and are uh critical of simple definitions or simple solutions and uh administrative problem solving as though we can do this work in a um, a linear kind of fashion. We've identified it and we could just resolve it. That's not uh, real. And we appreciate having voices like yours that really added depth to it. Um, and, uh, and a lot of uh, rigor from your different disciplinary perspectives. Oh, my God.